life is full of tension. Even the fact that I'm using, like, I'm probably thinking too deeply here. This is a little bit ridiculous, but sometimes I feel this tension internally. I'm using a disposable water bottle. Some people will tell us that I am contributing to the end of earth as we know it, right? And I should be using a water bottle that does not fill our landfills. And I've tried that, but I lose them all the time. I leave them places. So I spend 20 bucks on a water bottle, and I leave it somewhere, and then I spend $20 more on a water bottle, and I leave it somewhere, and then I spend $20 more on a water bottle, and I leave it somewhere. So I just use these often because if I leave this somewhere, who cares, right? And so I even feel that tension in myself. Some of you are like sold out on using non-disposable water bottles. Good, amen, thank you. Some of you can't keep track of your water bottles. That's okay, right? We live in this world of tension where we have different convictions. People have different ideas of what we must do to be, to be stewards of the earth or to, to give creation care or to engage with racial justice or to engage in politics or whatever it is. We, our churches and, and ourselves internally, we're full of tension, Intention gets a pretty bad rap, right? I mean, think about the connotations of the word tension even. Tension headaches. Who wants a tension headache? Or tension with your roommate, or your boss, your spouse, your neighbor, your family, your friends, etc., right? Nobody wants tension. We like to relieve tension and eliminate tension. Most sane people try to avoid tension altogether, and in this, I think we often neglect the reality that tension is a good and necessary thing in life. Tension is essential to pull a car out of a ditch. How many of us have been here ourselves? You live in Minnesota. You've been in this situation, either on the receiving end or on the helping end. Tension is vital. Tension is also extremely important to preserve a life foolishly thrown from an airplane. Without tension, that is not a good situation. Do not throw yourself out of an airplane without tension. And no, this is not me. I wish it was. It's just a Google image picture. Right? But tension, it's, it's two opposite things moving in different directions. And tension is that, that, that string in between the two. Tension is essential to enjoy summer fun on a Minnesota lake. This is my children being pulled on a tube behind a boat. And, and, and there's tension on that line, on that tow rope. Tension is essential to advance society. The Golden Gate Bridge would collapse without tension. It needs it. It survives on it. Tension is essential to enjoy music. Beautiful music this morning from our worship team. And, and this guitar right here, this guitar here, the drums they weren't played this morning, uh, that guitar over there, this piano, they all rely on tension to produce a beautiful sound. Those strings are loosened. It is not a beautiful sound. We all leave this church for one reason alone. The band sounds terrible. Tension is essential, and not only is it an essential part of everyday life, but it's also necessary and a healthy part of our spiritual life. Many people want to clear up all religious tension and have smooth sailing. So many of us, we just want to eliminate tension. That's why the world is attracted to echo chambers, where everybody says the same thing about politics, about religion, about theology, about philosophy, about their beliefs on whatever. We like to surround ourselves with people who think and act like us so that we can eliminate tension. But in doing that, we take the beauty out of life and we take God's sanctifying agent out of our life. Tension is necessary. 
Life with God and other people is filled with tension, and it must be embraced. The journey towards greater authenticity, so we're talking about this month, with God, self, and others, is one filled with a holy tension. In all of this talk about authenticity, right, if you've been here the last couple of weeks and if you've been tracking along with some of this, you, you, might, you might be questioning this idea of finding your true self. It sounds kind of self-focused, and you feel some tension there. Are we really supposed to find ourselves? Am I really supposed to be the authentic, true me? Aren't I supposed to die to self, deny self, and become like Jesus? Yes, to both. And that's where the tension lies this morning. The greatest tension in finding authenticity lies between our old self, our old nature, and our new self, our new nature, right? The old self. Look at that Pinocchio emoji. It's, it's, it's the lying self. It's the fake self. It's the false self. It's the imitator. It's the imposter. And sometimes it, it has obvious elements of sin. Other times it looks really good and holy on the surface because we're doing image management and we want people to think a certain thing about us, but it's really inauthentic. You're, you're acting patient externally, but internally you're raging. That's part of the old self, the old nature, the false self. And then in Jesus, we we have this new self, right? The halo. We are made new. We actually have a new nature, a new identity. And we live our lives kind of moving back and forth on this continuum. We actually, our identity, our rooting in Jesus is the new self. We have been given the righteousness of Jesus. The Bible actually says that if we're in Christ, we are considered holy, blameless, and above reproach. Yet, do you feel that way daily? No, we we still struggle with this old self, this old nature. And so we live in the tension of that, right? That middle emoji, the sweaty, nervous, tearful. That's our existence, church family. We live in this tension. Our identity is a new man, a new human being. But our experience is pinging back and forth between the old self and the new self. In the book, The Relational Soul, Richard Plass and James Colfield, and I highly recommend this book this fall, uh, one of the two books that I highly recommend reading as we track through the sermon series, they say, the false self is an image we create. We are masters at creating an image, but we are novices at recognizing and repenting of the images we create. Our truest identity is not the self we create, but the self that God creates and freely gives to us in Christ. We cannot earn this true self. It is discovered in Christ. It is received by faith. Amen? That's true of you and I in Jesus. We have this new nature, this new gift, this new reality that we live in. And yet we continually dabble in the false self, the old self. And so today I'm going to Uh, Take us through a handful of scriptures and see how this plays out biblically. We're going to cover a lot of ground. I'm going to give a little bit of commentary as we go, but primarily we're just going to look at some passages and kind of walk through them. There's a ton more scripture than this, but these are a few scriptures that have been shaping me over the last 18 months as I've been thinking about authenticity and what it means to, to die to the old self, to crucify the flesh, and to live out the new self to fan into flame the spirit living in me, the new nature given me by God. And so our first text this morning is going to be John 3, 1 through 21. John 3, 1 through 21. Uh, Usually I have you stand as we read, but we're going to do a bunch of different texts today. So I'm just going to have you sit there, open up your Bible, and follow along with me. 
And uh, I'll read a couple verses, I'll make a few comments, read a couple verses, make a few comments, and that is our plan for the morning. So John chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, and I just, I just love that, even in verse 2, sometimes people are a little bit cautious in asking questions about their faith or their curiosity in Jesus and the ways of God. They're actually embarrassed or they're hiding it because they're afraid of what other people will think about them if they actually were to pursue religion. I don't know if it's news to you or not, but Christianity as, a, as, a, as an institution does not have a great reputation right now, especially in America. And so there's some people who are genuinely interested in Jesus, but they're very concerned about being associated with the evangelical Christian movement. And so they're asking questions, but they don't want to be associated with us. Isn't that amazing? And here, that's Nicodemus. He's very curious about Jesus. But he's nervous about being associated with Jesus and his people because of religious dynamics and religious wars and what the other Pharisees would think of him and, and just this Jesus movement because Jesus is countercultural and he will offend and tick everybody off because he will not fit into any of our boxes. And so Nicodemus comes to him at night because he doesn't want to be seen talking to Jesus. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. We know that you, that you are a teacher. Come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you've probably heard this term born again before. Uh, sometimes it's in a really positive light. Sometimes it's kind of made fun of in the national scene. This is Jesus' teaching that in order to, to receive the new self, the new nature, to live out the new man or woman in Christ, there's this, there's this theological term, there's this reality of being born again. He says, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Great question. I just love that. What, what do you even mean, Jesus, be born again? He can't climb back up into the womb and be reborn. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, there's a lot of ink spilt on verse 5 and a lot of arguing over what that means and trying to figure out what that means. Uh, and there's different interpretations. What I ha happen to think that it means, I think the water is kind of this, this reference, this imagery to baptism, this new nature where it, it, we're not saved through baptism, but it is, is, it's a symbol of our old self dying, being cleansed and buried in water, and we raise against new life. So when he says born of water, I think that's, a, that's a, a nod towards this visible act of being cleansed and of spirit. That's the receiving of the Holy Spirit and receiving the power of God. One commentary says this, there are two thoughts here. Water is the symbol of cleansing. When Jesus takes possession of our lives, when we love him with all of our heart, the sins of the past are forgiven and forgotten. The spirit is the symbol of power. When Jesus takes possession of our lives, it is not only that the past is forgiven and forgotten, if that were all, we might well proceed to make the same mess of our life over and over again. But into life, there enters a new power which enables us to be what by ourselves we could never 
do, and be. Water and spirit stand for the cleansing and the strengthening power of Christ, which wipes out the past and gives victory to the future. That's the power that allows us to live out the new nature, the new self, the new man, the new woman. So Jesus is saying, unless one is born again and born of water and spirit, they don't know the kingdom of God. Pick it up in verse 6. He says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's the old self. The flesh. You could also think of this, this continuum, right? The old self and the new self. You could say the flesh and the spirit. In Scripture, the, the flesh is representative of the, the ways of the world in our, in our fallen state, our sinful nature that has, has no control over our sinning, that we are doomed for destruction. And then the spirit, the new self, the new man, is this redeemed, born-again person. So he says, this, uh, verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said this to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying this is the path to true authenticity, being born again. And there's a tension that you will feel as you're born again, as you walk in authenticity. You will feel the tension between the flesh and the spirit. This is the daily battle that you and I engage in. Let's jump down to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Now, as we talk about authenticity, it has to do with honesty, with revealing truth, right? And it's all about the light of God revealing what is happening in the dark and bringing healing and hope, bringing light into the darkness. It says, the light has come into the world. And John chapter 1 is all about Jesus, the light of God, the light with us. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because of their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. That's a key phrase, carried out in God. See, the old self, this this fleshly self, this is what is being exposed by God, by the light of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And then as we are born again, as Jesus is telling Nicodemus here is necessary for the living out of this new life, as we're born again, there are new works. There's a new way of living. There's a new way of being, but it's not in our own power. Look at what he says in verse 21. These works have been carried out in God. It's by abiding in Jesus, as we sang this morning. It's by remembering our new nature. It's by the inward transformation, the inward work of the soul that produces outward, external acts that look like Jesus. And so that's the call for us this morning from Jesus. It's to be born again. That's how we crucify the flesh and keep in step with the Spirit. Now, next one I want to look at is Matthew chapter 16. You're going to flip to the left a little bit. Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 28. 
Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in glory to the Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This passage is a a key passage, the teaching of Jesus out of his own mouth about what it means for us to kill the flesh and live by the Spirit. For for us to to move towards this, this new, authentic self. And in this conversation, in this idea about authenticity, there's, there, there's a couple ways to think about authenticity, right? One, it's just being who you are, just embracing whoever you are. But the Christian path of authenticity is being the new person, embracing the new man, the new woman who God has created you to be. That doesn't mean that God wipes out our personality and carbon copies us like other people. It means that he transforms our personality, transforms our thinking, transforms our way of being as we die to self. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And this denial here, this is not a denial of who God created you to be. Sometimes in the, in, in the Christian church, we, we take it this way, and it's like, well, I'm, I'm really just, uh, I, I'm kind of, one of the classic things that I observe is people who are more boisterous and loud, Christians often assume they're really proud and arrogant. But sometimes they're just boisterous and loud. In fact, I know a few people who are extremely boisterous and loud, and I sense much more humility in them in a few people who are very quiet and subdued. There's a way to be quiet and subdued, but really proud, really judgmental. There's also a way to be boisterous and loud and really humble about it. My best friend is boisterous and loud, and he is the quickest person that I know to repent of sin. He's passionately on fire for the Lord. And there's times early on when I first met him, I was like, that guy's really arrogant. He's not. He's just loud and expressive. And so when Jesus says, deny yourself, he's not saying deny the way that I've wired you. He's saying, deny your, your flesh, the desires of your flesh, the things that you want to do to, 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 to build up your own identity, your own reputation, to feed the cravings of your flesh. He says, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The idea of cross here, it, it's like crucifying to our own. Jesus hung on the cross, right? He was crucified for our sin. For us to take up our cross, it, it means crucifying ourselves of our own our own passions, our own fleshly desires, but also this idea of cross. A cross is it's a stake in the ground. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that you must be willing to not drive your stake into the ground of the world and to say, I, am, I must succeed in my career. I must have people love me. I must be perceived as helpful. I must be perceived as whatever it is. He's saying you, you need to un, unstake Whatever thing of life, you would, you would plant your flag in and say, this is who I am, this is how I want to be, this is how I want to be perceived. He's saying, take up your cross and follow me. It's this willingness to open up your hands and to die to the ways of the world. Whether that's wealth, some of us have, have our cross staked in the, in the ground of wealth and the pursuit of wealth. Some of us power, 
So much of the political discourse and tension right now in America is around power. And Jesus is saying, you must be willing to un, unstake your cross from your desire for power or progress, however you see that, or, or, or conservatism, however you see that, or sex, or the approval or praise of other people, or comfort. Maybe your cross is, is staked in the ground of comfort. I just, I need life to go my way. I need comfort. I'm pursuing comfort. I want comfort. I long for comfort. Or maybe your cross is staked in the ground of control. And Jesus is saying that that this process of becoming authentically new, authentically Christian, is to unstake your cross from the unholy pursuits that you have and to follow him wherever he leads. For whoever would save his life, and this word here, life, it could also mean soul. So it's not just about fleshly death. I think because of the translators use the word life here, I think oftentimes we look at martyrs for the faith, and they are such great examples of the faith, people who are willing to actually lose their life for the sake of the gospel. But then sometimes we, we, we can over-radicalize this, or we can think it's not for us, my life isn't in danger. This word can also mean soul. Really what he's saying is whoever, whoever would lose his soul, lose his life, not hold on to his own identity, for my sake will find it. Whoever would lose, whoever would save his life for his own sake, for his own identity, whoever would try to protect their own soul or suppress the sin in their own soul for their image management, they will lose their soul. They will lose their life. But if you're willing to open it up, to give it away, to unstake it from your own ground, we will find life. For what will it profit a man or a woman if they gain the whole world? You get everything your heart desires. You're the most authentically you in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of yourself, but yet you're suffering internally because you're distanced from your creator. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Or what what should a man give in return for his soul? So this is the pathway to authenticity. It's It's to unstake our cross from the ground that we like to put it in. And to say, God, lead me where you would lead me, and I will go there. Next one is Romans chapter 6. Flip over to Romans chapter 6. And really, Romans chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, all has a great picture of authenticity and what it looks like to die to the old self and to live out the new self. I'm just going to look at a couple Sections here, but I encourage you to read Romans chapter 4 through 8 with this idea of authenticity in mind and dying to the old way of life and living the new way of life. Romans chapter 6, pick it up in verse 5, and in the first four verses here, he's talking about baptism as a symbol of dying to the old self and living to the new self. Then verse 5, he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Dead to the old way of life. Dead and gone and alive to God in Christ. 
fully alive, the new man, the new woman, right? And that's, that, that's our reality. Our reality in Jesus is that we are dead to sin and alive to Christ. Yet we continue to slide back and forth because of our actions, right, and our feelings and the shame and the accusation of the devil. So you and I, you need to be reminded that we are planted. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are planted firmly in the new self, the new man, the new woman. You are united with God in Jesus Christ. Yet the flesh still raises its head and it it wages this war. That's the tension in the middle, which Paul is going to get to. Let's stick with it. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That, that old self, that old way of life, there's still these fleshly passions that, that, that the cravings of our flesh want, whether that's, whether that's just carnal fleshly desires or whether that's an image thing where we want people to like us or love us or praise us or accept us or whatever it is for you. That's the tension. Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you. You are a saint who sins. You are not a sinner. That's the reality of the scriptures. Your identity, if you are in Jesus, is no longer as a sinner. You are a saint who wrestles with the flesh and sins on occasion. That occasion might be frequent for you, or by God's grace, as you're sanctified, it might be less frequent. But in my experience, the people who are becoming more holy think that they sin more often, and the people who think that they sin, that they don't sin very much, have become immune or, or unaware of the sin in their own life. And look at what Paul says. Jump to chapter 7. Pick it up in verse 15. The tension here between the old and the new. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who does it, but, the, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who does it, but sin that dwells within me. Feel that tension? This is who I am, the new man, the new woman, the new person. And yet there's this battle waging within me between the spirit and the flesh. Verse 21, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war, the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And then let's carry it on to 8 verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And chapter 8 is all about God's sure, securing, never letting go love for us, his people. You feel the tension there in Paul himself? The the writer of two-thirds of the New Testament? 
this tension that we live in between the old man and the new man. We're trying to, trying to learn what it looks like to be authentically Jesus's, to live an authentic, real life for him. And yet, yet our flesh still sins. And so then we, you and I, have to figure out, what is me being expressive and what is me being impatient? And that's a tension. For people who are expressive, oftentimes people perceive them as impatient, right? Because they're just, they're expressing themselves quickly and, and, and verbally processing. I'm a verbal processor. Sometimes people think that I'm impatient. And sometimes I am because there's a, there's a fleshly part in me that, that needs to be crucified and dead, that it is crucified, right? But it needs to be continually transformed for the glory of God. But a verbal processor isn't necessarily just impatient. They're wired differently. And so we have to figure this out. This is the tension. We have to keep in mind our new identity in Jesus. We have been made new. Let's go on to another passage, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 5, 1. Again, the Apostle Paul writing about this tension, this battle between the old way of life and the new way of life. He says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And in Scripture, Gentiles, it was a non-Jew, and it was a category, it was, it was basically just say non-believers, those who don't believe in Jesus, those who have not been redeemed. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous. That's a, that's a sign of the old self, the old way of life. And, and when we as new creations, new creatures, when we give into the old way of life, it's because there's something hard in us. There's something that has grown callous in us. So we need the Holy Spirit of God to soften up the soil of our heart and soul, to remove the callous, to remove the blinders, to open up our ears, to soften our heart so that we could once again be reminded that true authenticity is living life God's way, not our way. He says that they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn to Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, here's that language, that old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Now, we're all people of desire. We all have desire, and God has given you and I desire. But the old self, the old way, those desires are, are, are deceived. They're corrupt. That's exactly what, what, what Satan did to Adam and Eve in the garden. He came and he played on their desire to know God when they actually already knew God. But he's saying there's, there's more here. There's more. You can know good and evil the way that the Lord knows good and evil. And really, God's intent was for them to only know good, for them to not know evil. They were shielded from evil. And Satan came and he deceived their desires. Their desire is to know good and to know God, and they knew good and they knew God, but, but then he deceived them. And so he deceived their desires. This is true for all of us. We all have desires, good desires that God gave us, but the old way of life, in a non-authentic way of living, is when our desires are deceived and we give in to those deceitful desires rather than holy desires. Verse 23, he says, And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, like we talked about last week, thoughts drive feelings which drive behaviors. And so we're not just doing behavior modification. We're not just changing our external way of living so that we can look more religious. 
We're actually changing internally. We're, we're renewing our mind and the spirit of our mind, and this is where transformation happens. Thoughts drive feelings, which drive behaviors. Paul here is saying that we need to renew the spirits of your mind, verse 24, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but let me give you an example of authenticity real quick. When it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger, when Brittany and I first got married, we would usually have arguments in the evening, like at nighttime when we're tired. And Brittany, being a good Christian girl who was raised in the church and taught the scriptures, was like, the Bible says we can't let the sun go down on our anger, so we have to figure this argument out now, like 2 a.m. in the morning. And, and, I, and I'm like, yeah, the Bible does say that. You're right. Okay, let's keep hashing it out. And we would get nowhere. We would usually just fall asleep mad and like, ah, we failed. We let the sun go down on our anger. Until we started thinking about this a little more, and I'm like, is that what it means? And, and, and no, I don't think it's a literal do not go to bed until you are happy. No, it, it means don't make peace with your sin. Don't, don't settle up to your sin. Don't, don't sweep it under the rug. Don't make peace with anger. It's not saying you have to figure this out now. In fact, married couples, I would encourage you not to try and have all your fights at night. Sometimes you just need to sleep. Sometimes you need to go for a walk. Sometimes you need to eat a meal. And then you have this conversation. For us, that, that was authenticity. Like for us to authentically apply this verse, we had to realize we can't fight when we're tired. We can't fight at night. We got to fight in the morning with coffee. And, and that helps us. For other people, like they may be able to work this out at night. That's part of authenticity, learning who you are, how you're wired. What, what is the principle and heart of God's word, not the law, the spirit of God's word, not the law of God's word? And then Paul goes on, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. That's part of authenticity, this honesty, revealing what is true, working for what is true. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. This inward transformation where we're killing the old way of life and we're allowing God to renew us from the inside out. And I, and I love verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. He says, Therefore, because of all that, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Keep that verse in mind as we do communion in a few minutes. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. We take communion at Park to be reminded that Jesus is the sacrifice for our sins. He gave himself up 
to crucify our old nature. He paid the penalty of all of our old nature, our old way of life, and he has now imputed to us his righteousness. He has given us his righteousness, his holiness, his new life. That's our standing in God, and that's what we learn to, to, to live out as we become more authentically whole. David Benner, in his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, said, Jesus knew who he was in God. He could therefore resist temptation to live out the false self based on power, prestige, or possessions. By resisting these false ways of being, Jesus was moving toward an identity grounded in his relationship to the Father. An identity in which his calling became obvious as he came to understand who he really was. That's the pathway for us to live out the new life, is to look to Jesus as our example. He is our sacrifice, right? That's what Paul just said here in Ephesians chapter 5. He's our sacrifice. He paid the penalty for our sins. He overcame sin and death in the grave and gave us a new life, a new nature. But he's also our example. He walked with God. He didn't give in to the temptation of the world to, 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 do, to do image management, to, to pursue power and prestige. Do you remember Satan tempting him in the wilderness? Jesus, I will give you all this, the kingdoms of the world, the power. And what he meant there is political, top-down power on earth. And Jesus is like, nope. Not giving into that temptation. Jesus, you're hungry. You've been fasting for 40 days. Turn this rock into bread. Your flesh is weak and hungry and starving. And, and, and he didn't give in to that temptation. Because he knew who he was in God and he kept walking with God. And so Jesus is not only our sacrifice, but he's also our example. If you want to live an authentic life for God, look to Jesus and, and follow his example. Let him be a living example to you. One more passage, and we'll close out and go to communion. Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Again, the Apostle Paul writes, If then you have been raised with Christ, remember this imagery of baptism, dead to sin, alive to God in Jesus Christ. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. This idea of renewing our mind, right? Romans chapter 12 talked about, we talked about that last week in one of the previous texts, this idea of the mind, renewing the spirit of our mind. Thoughts drive feelings, which drive actions. We need to, we need to drill deeper and understand our thoughts and understand how to apply the true thoughts of God to our inner lives. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the renewal of the mind. And the, the, the new nature, it's hidden with Christ in God. We're given a new character, a new way of doing life. Again, not a new personality. We're going to talk about that some next week. Not, you do not become a different you you become a sanctified new you, a holy you, the good you. And then he, he tells us what this old death, like killing the, the flesh, the old death, and putting on the new. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. You're making war on the old self, on sin. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two you once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. And this knowledge here isn't just a head knowledge. It's an experiential knowledge of God. We are created in the image of God. And so authenticity is, is aligning more and more with that. This is what it means to live out the, this, this creation mandate, this image bearing that we've been given. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let me close out with verses 12 through 17 as a reflection as we move towards communion. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Lord Jesus, I pray that even now as we take communion and as we sing these songs, that we would put on the new nature, the new self. I pray that, that we would be living out this passage, letting the word of Christ dwell in us richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to you. Lord, I thank you that you meet us in the tension. Lord, and, and, and theologically, you've relieved the tension. We are made new. We don't have to work for our salvation. We don't have to work for our justification. We don't have to work. And yet, the process of living out our new status, our new nature, it's filled with a lot of tension as we fight the flesh and desire to keep in step with the Spirit. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a supernatural work in us of helping us to realize more and more the reality of the gift of the new man, the new woman that you've given us. Lord, help us to become authentically whole as we fan in the flame the gift of your spirit for your glory, for our good and the advancement of your gospel, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.